Well, inspired by March Madness, this past week I listened to a fascinating TED podcast on what makes really good basketball teams. The podcast Work Life, hosted by organizational psychologist Adam Grant, was titled Humility, a Hidden Ingredient in Teams. In it, Grant examines 10 years worth of NBA stats, concluding that teams with five all-stars don't actually win more. Sometimes, in fact, it can be disastrous because they're all competing to be top dog. They're all used to taking the game-winning shot, so small plays like grabbing loose balls is beneath them. Statistically speaking, teams with three stars and two average players win more. Consulting with Michael Lewis, author of Moneyball on the Blind Side, Grant cites the example of Shane Battier, a former NBA player for the Miami Heat who, among many other awards, won back-to-back titles with the Heat in 2012-2013. Battier wasn't the most talented player on the court. His teammate was LeBron James. (laughs) But he's been credited with making his team play more effectively. When Battier was on the court, his team took better shots, executed better defense, and played smarter. The year before Battier joined the Heat in 2010, there were high hopes the team would win multiple championships because they just signed the big three, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh. But they didn't. They struggled. It wasn't until Battier joined that they won back-to-back titles. In fact, Shane Battier is the only player in NBA history to be part of two 20-game winning streaks. When Battier is interviewed on the podcast, you can hear his humility. He knew his shortcomings and accepted his role on the team was to make his teammates excel at what they did. But it's not just in sports where humility helps the team be more successful. Recent studies in leadership have emphasized this as well. This week's idea cast from Harvard Business Review was called Leading with Less Ego, How Mindfulness, Selflessness, and Compassion Can Make You a Better Leader. Jim Collins, whose research on high-performance organizations has earned him recognition in the best of Harvard Business Review, writes about level five leaders and what makes them so effective. He says level five leaders are study in duality because they possess both fierce resolve and humility. In fact, an overwhelming inflated, an overinflated ego often contributed to the demise or continued mediocrity of once successful companies in his research. Now, this combination of humility and selflessness coupled with resolve and commitment is not new. In fact, it's one of the final famous sayings of Jesus we're looking at today as we're nearing the end of our series, The Quotable Jesus. Jesus puts it like this. Whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Now, like many of these sayings, we may not always apply them as Jesus intended. If you've ever heard the phrase servant leadership, It finds its basis in part from this passage. I wanna be clear at the outset what I don't think servant leadership means because I think there can be a lot of confusion about this in the church. Sometimes servant leadership is interpreted as the leader must be willing to do menial jobs, scrubbing toilets, changing light bulbs, and if he's not spending his time doing those things, he's not a servant leader. 
Sadly, many Christian organizations have not remained viable financially in part because their leader was too busy doing menial jobs to run the organization. I once worked for an organization like this, and while I deeply respect the leader's sincerity and desire to obey this verse, I also observed, even as a teenager, that we didn't need him unplugging the toilets or mowing the grass. We needed him raising funds and doing strategic planning, things that only he could do, or we weren't gonna make it. And indeed, the organization has floundered for years. Somehow, this idea of servant leadership must include both good leadership principles, setting vision for the organization, uh, maximizing the strengths and unique contributions of each member, as well as an attitude of humility. And it isn't about me sense and a willingness to do whatever needs to be done. In the case of this particular nonprofit, perhaps it would have meant creating systems for maintaining the grounds without the director's involvement, valuing those who did manage the grounds and involving the director only rarely as intended. Now this is a delicate balance to be sure, but I think Jesus' own example is helpful. He was extremely selfless and compassionate, and yet he also had great resolve and will. We'll come back to this later on, but for now, note that servant leadership should not be equated with weakness or always complying with what is asked of us. With that background, let's look now at the context for this particular statement. It's found in Mark 10, 35 to 45. You can find it on page 1522 in the Pew Bible or just follow along on the screen. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You've got to be kidding me, Jesus said. No, he didn't say that. That's what I would say. <laughs> he was much more kind. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you gotta love that this story is in the Bible, and you gotta love these two brothers. If that's not chutzpah, I don't know what is. But Jesus is so kind and patient with them, Whenever I get discouraged about the Christian church, I just think about the raw material Jesus had to work with as its nucleus, and I'm encouraged. We've always had our issues, but God is not dissuaded. He will continue to build his church. 
Without knowing the context for the brother's favor, it can seem out of left field. This incident and the one right after is the last thing that happens before Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey that first Palm Sunday and is subsequently tried and crucified. He's just told his disciples for the third time in verses 32 to 34 that he's headed to Jerusalem to die. Now, previously, in a different story, Jesus told his followers, Jesus told his followers that they too would rule on a throne. And he's repeatedly talked about this kingdom that is coming. So when Jesus sets out for Jerusalem, they're thinking, oh, it's coronation day. He's about to establish his kingdom. And so wanting to secure the most prestigious places, the highest offices, if you will, they asked to sit on both sides of the throne. Jesus can be number one, but they want to be number two and three. Jesus answers, you don't know what you are asking. And then he uses two common metaphors in Jewish literature, the cup and baptism, to reference his imminent suffering on the cross. And indeed, they have no idea what Jesus actually means here. They aren't able to fulfill the unique role Jesus will, but they will each suffer for him in some way years later. John, through exile to the island of Patmos, and James, through martyrdom by King Herod in Acts 12, 2. Refusing their request, Jesus says the Father is the one who makes the seating arrangements. Now notice verse 41. If the brother's pride is revealed in their audacious question, the remaining disciples' pride is revealed in their anger. Their desire for greatness is not as overt, but it's there nonetheless. Jesus, sensing this is an issue for all 12 of them, summons them together. He addresses the conflict head on with the group. In verse 42, he describes the status quo, the Gentiles or Greek and Roman authorities who ruled over them at the time like tyrants, ruling with an iron fist, using fear and corruption, seeking power for their own gain and letting the ends justify the means. We can all think of leaders, historical or present, who rule this way. We can all think of environments that function this way. Climb, push, shove, get ahead. Worry about yourself. It's cutthroat, man. Do what you need to do to get on top and to stay there. Now, if you can't relate to that and you're having trouble picturing that, if it seems too extreme, think of the more subtle form of that desire for power evident in the 10 disciples. Jockeying for positions, competing for ranks. They're not as mean as the Romans, but they still have a desire for recognition and prestige, and it impacts their relationships. To both the overt and the more subtle desire for power, Jesus gives an emphatic, not so among you. You're to be different, opposite in fact. And then that famous line, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Servants and slaves directed their entire lives towards others. The contrast Jesus sets out is stark. Instead of dominating others, we lift them up. Instead of seeing how many people we can control, we see how many people we can help. Instead of using power for our own advantage, we use it for others' benefit. Instead of ruling by coercion, we rule by compassion. 
Given each one of us desires prestige and recognition in one way or another, I want to spend the next few minutes offering four suggestions for how we can try to live Jesus' teaching. There are many ways to apply this, but here are just a few ideas to get us on the way. First, seek or use power to benefit others. I'm using the word power here very broadly as any influence you exert, not just positional power. Whether in the classroom or on the court, in the home or in the volunteer role, each one of us has a circle of influence. Think about what yours is right now. What is your primary motivation for how you function in those roles? Are you focused on what you can get out of it or on what you can give? Are you focused on yourself or others? Andy Crouch says, leadership begins the moment you are more concerned about others flourishing than about your own. What does that actually look like in our lives? Again, the list is endless, but here's a few ideas. Apply for jobs, not because of the prestige or status it promises, but for the contribution you can make to the organization. Cheerfully help a coworker, even though it might take away from your own productivity. Honor your employees by adequately compensating them in salary and benefits, or using your relational capital with a group to include the person on the periphery. However we do it, seek or use the power we have been given to help others. Second, and this one is not so straightforward, do good deeds without others knowing. Let me explain the connection here. Our preoccupation with greatness or prestige is rooted in pride. So the goal is to become more humble, but trying to become humble is very self-occupying and therefore self-defeating. So we've got to come at it another way. And that other way is to chip away at pride by doing good deeds secretly. That way we are really doing them for God and not for the kickback we'll receive for our reputation. Jesus teaches this in Matthew 6, 1. Be careful not to practice your acts of righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, you are all probably way better people than me, but I'm telling you, you try this for a week or a month, and you will be shocked at how hard this can be. My friend says, if you really want to go for the jugular with pride, practice secrecy, and I have found that to be true. Richard Foster writes about this, although he calls it hiddenness, in his chapter on service in celebration of discipline. The flesh whines against service, but screams against hidden service. He goes on to say, hiddenness is a rebuke to the flesh and can deal a fatal blow to pride. So, did you give money to a good cause or volunteer somewhere? Cook a meal for someone in need or visit them? How about doing it without telling anyone? Obviously, this can present a challenge at times practically, but you'd be amazed at how much you will want to tell others about it who really would have no way of knowing had you not casually mentioned it in that conversation. Your pride will reel, but it will also be curbed as gradually over time you are freed up to genuinely love those around you more selflessly. Third, 
Stay rooted in a group of people who can show you accurately who you are. This is something Michael Lewis noted in athletes who rose to the level of superstar. He said they did better when they stayed connected to their buddies who knew them way back when, before they were famous. Those long-term relationships kept them grounded, remembering where they'd come from and all they had been given. It's awfully tempting when you're traveling for work, speaking at conferences, or getting other accolades in your field to start believing your own press. Staying connected to the people you work with and live with and love will help us all maintain what St. Paul calls sober judgment. This is in part what we're striving to do as a Christian community, to be a community of belonging, not based on position or title or credentials, but based on who we are as people growing in Christ-likeness. May that be so among us. Fourth, trust God to reward you in the end. See, living this selfless, humble way of life doesn't really make sense unless this isn't all there is, unless there really is a coming kingdom we haven't yet experienced. Yes, sometimes serving others works and profits soar and constituencies are pleased, but other times it doesn't. You're overlooked, misunderstood, discredited, maybe even crucified. I think of people working in our public schools or in social services who work long hours for little pay, day after day, week after week, pouring themselves out in service to people who don't even seem to notice or care. This is the hope for those who feel like they don't have power or prestige. God sees, God knows, God will reward He will settle the score. His kingdom hasn't fully come yet. Keep doing good work. Keep pouring yourself out. You may not feel powerful, but in fact, this is true greatness. And God is pleased. May that encourage you today. I said earlier I'd return to Jesus' example, and I want to spend the last few minutes doing that. Verse 35 gives us a basis for why we live this way. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Many here is a Jewish idiom for all. Jesus shares with us here his life's purpose. And in fact, the purpose of his life cannot be understood apart from his death. It's not apparent to us given the linguistic, temporal, and cultural barriers, but those listening would have heard the word ransom as a clear reference to a slave owner making necessary payment to free his slave. Jesus says in verse 33 to 34, the payment will actually be his life. And in offering his life, he will purchase us. He will free us from slavery to sin, to self, and even to death itself. But Jesus didn't just say this, he did it. And what makes Jesus' sacrifice so astounding here is that here we have supreme greatness, stooping to serve others. The early Christians had a song about this descending in order to ascend. It's recorded for us in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, and it's introduced with this command. 
in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited or to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now think about this. God, the creator of the universe, the almighty one, didn't use his power for his own advantage. He used it for others. He came down into our mess. He moved into our neighborhood. He took the lowest position, becoming not just a servant, but a little baby, a limited, vulnerable, squawking, dependent baby. And as that baby grew, he lived his life, submitting to his father's will, living a truly selfless life. But we dare not mistake selflessness for weakness. No, there was resolve. Mark 10, 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. And those who followed were afraid. See, if Jesus had been the kind of servant leader who took his cues from those around him, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. Nobody saw that coming, even in his attempts to try to prepare them. And so on his last journey to Jerusalem, that first Palm Sunday, he tries to show them again. He is a different kind of king. His is a different kind of kingdom. Instead of a champion war horse, he rides a gentle donkey. His throne isn't a seat from which to exercise power. It's a cross from which he offers up his life. His crown isn't composed of jewels. It's composed of thorns. And those choice seats on the right or left of him aren't prestigious appointed officials. They're two condemned criminals. His dying words include a request for mercy for those who have wrongfully killed him, as well as a triumphant cry that his life's work has now been completed. It is finished. And then it goes dark. It's silent for three days. And then the third day, the silence is broken. Jesus gets up from the tomb, his body pulsating with life-giving blood. The crucified one lives again. He stared death in the face and dealt the final blow. His life, death, and resurrection ushers in a new kingdom. This is a king who wins and rules by giving himself away, by giving himself up for others out of sheer love for us. Who does that? That early Christian hymn finishes the song by proclaiming, therefore, because of that kind of sacrificial love and selfless giving, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, friends, that's the shout of Hosanna, we're going to sing when our king comes again. And on that occasion, he will exchange the cross for his throne and those thorns for his real crown, the temporary for the eternal. He will usher in fully a kingdom of mercy and justice and love. 
But until then, we, his followers, seek to live and work and love and serve with a not-so-with-you mentality. In following the example of our Lord, we resist being people who use power for our own advancement. We resist competing for power and exploiting it when we get it. Instead, we seek to imitate our humble, resolute leader in offering ourselves for the sake of others, even at great cost, trusting God will indeed raise us up in the end. Let's pray. Oh God, once again, what we hear from your word and what we see in your son, Jesus, is so not the air we breathe. It is not what we see around us. Save us, Hosanna, save us, God. Save us from our pride, from our abuse of power, from our craving and competing, and show us the life that is truly life, giving ourselves away. Help us to walk in step with you, even when it is to the cross, trusting that you will raise us up, that your kingdom is coming, and we long for it, and we pray for it to come more fully on this earth as it is in heaven through us, your people, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.